Hey everybody, and uh, welcome to this class. Today we're going to continue on our look in uh, Romans, Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin in verse, uh, I think it's verse 17, where we'll start our uh, look. We're not going to go back. We're not going to go back into what we have uh, We're not going to go back into what we've been looking at uh, in our previous class and even even the last class, really. Uh, what I want to do, we may touch on some of that because of just the nature of the overlap of these teachings, but I want to get into something. As you've noticed, I haven't, um, those of you who are listening to the podcast, I haven't put a lot on the podcast recently about Romans, and there's a reason, and it has to do with these verses that we're going to cover today. Um, I realize a lot of times that when I put certain things up that they're going to cause some controversy, not, you know, maybe not a lot, but at least call some people to um, throw some red flags. And with this particular uh, portion of Romans 8, what I begin to see, because again, there is a great governing reality when it comes to understanding the scripture, understanding the testament or, or the, the, the letters that are written here, the epistles, and everything else. It has to do with context. It has to fit the context of the place that it is uh, set, place that it's written. So a particular thing, although we could look at it and say, oh, well, that means this. You have to see these things in the light of their context and where they are uh, written. And that's what I've been doing with these verses. And I realize that, that what I'm going to say is going to fly in the face of a lot of people's understanding, a lot of people's theology. Um, but I think if we look at these things in their context, we can realize that this is what is being said in these verses. And it has to do with chapter, chapter 8, verses uh, 17 through 20. And another reason, because where it goes beyond that, where it goes after verse 20. Uh, again, another portion of the, the chapter that's been taken out of context and futurized and dispensationalized. but. We'll, we'll look at it more. We have in previous classes looked at it and, and talked about it. And because of that, um, I have just been sitting on this, looking at it, and just praying over it, making sure that I can at least say it, and I'm still not convinced that I can. I always feel like I never am able to say it the way it should be said to at least convey the thought. I know I can't make the reality of it real in you, but I can try to at least convey the thought. And I want to be able to at least attempt uh, to, to show what I think Paul, the author of this letter, is attempting to say. You've already looked at Romans 7, the struggle 
while many would interpret that chapter as a man who is a Christian having a constant struggle, trying to be holy, be righteous, but knowing that he can't, and that struggle constantly taking place. Um, it's not true. Uh, and, and he begins the chapter seven, or what is put as chapter seven. He begins that chapter by saying, I speak to you who know the law. And then he first begins to talk about a union. That's going to be important in this, in this session as well a joining, a union, a relationship that has determined a condition for uh, the, the, the woman who is married to this husband and has determined that she is in bondage to that husband until he dies. And, and the whole fact is Romans 6 talks about the death of that husband and how it is put away. We'll read some of Romans 6 as well uh, in, in, in reference to this. But Romans 7 was about a man under the law, a soul that is under the law, bound to, married to, the first man, the first husband. And therefore, whatever the law says, the righteousness demanded by the law, the, the ordinances and all of the perfections that those ordinances um, require, while that soul married to that particular first man could attempt through bodily efforts, bodily exercises, obedience, and zealous works to fulfill those demands and requirements, that marriage that is an internal condition, married, the soul married to that man of sin, could not carry it out, could not make it happen. It was, it was an impossibility because of an internal union, no matter what the external activities and, and zealous works of um, the flesh would be. And that is where we go. However, many Christians have seen that as the Christian struggle. Well, it's, it's like that in these verses as well. We take these things and we, we see them as mandates, as instruction, as instructive on what we have to do to qualify for this next level of spirituality, this next level of Christian ascendancy as far as our relationship with God and making it greater, making it better. And, um, you know, uh, how, what would I say, to deepen our relationship with God by these particular efforts or reach um, the intention for the soul through these particular um, external things. That's what these verses have become in most people's understanding. And it's, it's unfortunate because it has made many people, it has set many people on a path of frustration Frustration because the thing that they believe is going to be accomplished through these many efforts, multitude of efforts, um, will not be. Now, I mean, sure, some can lay back and rest in their own self-assessment and believe it has been, but as far as the truth of it, it is not, could not be, cannot be. Because just as the one union 
one joining together ensured death, sin, corruption, and impossibility as to righteousness and holiness. There is the necessity of another union, being married to another, that brings about the antithesis of the, of the previous condition, brings about righteousness, peace, joy, sanctification, holiness, all the spiritual blessings that come only in the beloved son. And that's what we're seeing here. And again, in Romans 7, we see Paul again experiencing this as a man under the law. Then Romans 8, he begins to speak of his, the liberty that he experiences in Christ through the now presence and indwelling of the spirit of life, the law of life not just the law that declares life, but the life of which the law of which the law spoke, now resident in his soul. Now he begins in the latter parts of this chapter to open it up, not only as an experience that is isolated to Paul as an individual, but he begins to expound on this and show that the liberty, the righteousness being fulfilled within that which proceeds out of the presence of Christ and not by the efforts of flesh is not just an intended thing for Paul. It was God's intention from the very start. It was God's intention when he set the law in the midst of his people because the law was there to keep the promises unto the seed who was to come. The law was there to keep man under a particular garment, keep him protected in custody until, now exposed, yes, it exposed, you need this, you need this one who's coming, you need the life that's coming because it's impossible as long as you're still in this condition. Um, so the law was given as basically an external prophecy of a life that would come by which they would be able to become, in the receiving of that life, dead to this first man, dead to this first condition, and, and be married to the man who is coming, the Messiah, the, the promised one. And that man would bring it about in them what they could not bring about through whatever efforts they employed. And that's what we're seeing. So in that context, we have to read these verses as well. We've gone through the chapters, chapter eight, through these verses and, and, and kept that context in view the whole time. So we can't lose it now. We can't lose sight of that context now. So let's read these verses, if you will. Romans chapter eight, verse 17. If, and if children, it says, and now we're the sons of God, all that, what we've dealt with previously. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs, here's, these are important phrases, joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, here it is, suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together, glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worth 
to be worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now I'm reading this from King James. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willing, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Now, I'm going to stop there because basically what I want to focus on is, is 17 and 18. I read 19 and 20 to try to just bring where it's going, but these two verses are something that's, that's a very touchy area for me. And I know when we read these words, if children, then heirs. Now, that's not controversial. That's not really up for debate for most people who read it. But this part, we are joint heirs with Christ, if so be, that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And it's very easy to take these words here and in, interpret them as the necessity of suffering for Jesus in order to keep intact what is intended for us in Christ. To continue to qualify or be qualified for what is God's intention for us. But we have to suffer for this glorification to take place. And then we have all of these ideas of what that suffering is. Because we'll, we'll definitely look at these verses, and that's what Christians have done throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, and they've read these things, and they, they read it like we're joint heirs with Christ only if we go through sufferings and tribulations, times of trouble and bad things happen. All of the, all of the struggles that Christians think are the sufferings. But many believing that have taken this as their path, and I'm going to tell you, that path will lead you to frustration and ultimate destruction because honestly i'm telling you it will never satisfy you because that's not the sufferings he's addressing we're going to read a couple things that say that but you cannot you cannot link this glorified together that we may be also glorified you can't link that to the sufferings and say, if we don't suffer in this life, all of the sufferings that Christianity tells us are the sufferings, you know, bad things happening, disease, situations like that, unless we suffer like this, then we're not worthy to be glorified. We are not qualified then to have this glorification happen. That is the wrong interpretation of this. It's a false view of these verses. And basically, I'm giving up on trying to convince you of that. I just want to present this to you and you can consider. I don't want to take away your suffering if you want to suffer. But I'm telling you, there's a suffering that has already taken place. There's a suffering that is constant for the believer. 
and a glorification that is already taking place, that has already happened for the believer. And that's what Paul is addressing here, because again, context. All of these realities of this, not in the not in the flesh, but you're now in the spirit. That these things are not, but this is the the carnal and the spirit. All the contrast he's making, Adam and Christ. That that context still should govern these things. He's not now jumping off and saying, "Man, we get beat all the time." This no. In fact, uh, Vincent's word studies, this is from Weist's word studies, but he's quoting uh, Vincent. He says that mere sufferings in the body, mere sufferings of the flesh, mere external trials, tribulations, and sufferings do not fulfill this condition, does not fulfill the condition that is played out here, that is written about here. He says it is specifically sufferings with Christ. That is important. He says, Paul was sure of the sufferings and the glorification because he says the inheritance attached to sonship is attained on the condition expressed in the clause, if so be that we suffer with him that we may be also glorified together with him or be glorified together. Paul was sure, this is again Vincent saying it, Paul was sure of it in his own case. And he took it for granted in that of others or those to whom he wrote. He took it for granted that that was the case for them as well. Now I want you to pay close attention to that. That's important. Take careful note of it. Paul was sure of it in his own case. Now, we could read that and say, of course he was. I mean, he was beaten all the time, left for dead. I mean, he had all of these trials, tribulations, struggles. So we could read that and could assuredly conclude that, yeah, Paul's confidence in this was solidified by these constant conflicts and struggles that he faced. But the second phrase here should cause us to realize something else is going on because Paul does use absolute language here. He's not just saying this is the case if so. These are since fulfilled condition words. These are words that says since this is, this is the case. This, has, this is the case and this is so. He's declaring something absolute. And he knows it is absolute for himself because he's, under, he's experienced it. But he's saying, this is the reality that you in Christ are experiencing or have experienced as well. This is a reality presently in Christ because he takes it for granted that such is the case with all those he's writing to. And that should show you that mere physical sufferings and hardships and beatings, it's not the sufferings being addressed. We'll look at it. Paul is very sure when we de when he declares the reality of Christ, any reality of eternal life, and and that reality being the possession, the present possession of the believer, he is sure to always contextualize it or confine it within the boundaries of a relationship with Christ. 
He, he never separates it from Christ because he doesn't say this is yours, isolated from Christ, if you meet these certain criteria. He wants them to understand this is yours in Christ. The criteria of that is you're in Christ or with Christ, as this case is. Now, keep all of that in mind. It's very important that we do that. I'm going to read this verse, these verses out of Romans 6 to try to contextualize the sufferings that he's addressing here. And then we're going to get into a look. We're going to look at the words that he uses, the phrases that he uses, because he's very, he's very particular in the use of these phrases. And he uses this conjunction, or, you know, these compound words all the time to make a point as to how does the reality that Christ has accomplished and that Christ basically embodies, how does that reality become the present possession of a believer? Because if we don't understand this, we will do what many have done, and we'll make these things instructive to say, if you're not struggling, if you're not facing hardships, tribulations, and bad situations, then, you know, in the Pentecostal, then you're not, you know, spiritual enough and you don't qualify for all these blessings that's coming down the pike or that's promised for you. Now, in the, in the Pentecostal denomination I was born in and, and raised in, it was this. If the devil's not beating you on a constant basis, if you are not constantly under a, a, a on uh, an assault or an onslaught of the demonic activity, then the devil knows you're not a, a threat to his kingdom. So he's not even bothering you. So what does our prayer become under that? I know I did. We pray for the devil to start attacking us so that we could be assured that God loved us because we were an enemy of the devil and not an enemy of God because we knew we were an enemy of the devil and we were qualified for the heavenly blessings that were going to come because the devil was always beating us down and trying to overcome us. Unfortunately, that's the concept. But that's not the concept of Scripture. Not if you look at it. Not if you understand it. Romans 6, 2 speaks of these sufferings with Christ. This is important. Now, we won't get into this fully. We have in previous Romans sessions, but let me read it just to bring this into your mind. Romans 6, verse 2, God forbid that how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That ring a bell in Romans 8. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be, or be also, in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, reached the Romans 7, and that man, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Colossians talks about that body of sin that we have had circumcised, 
might be destroyed, that henceforth from this moment on, for the moment of birth in Christ, new birth, we should walk or should not serve sin, be under the mastery of sin as a slave to it. For he that is dead is freed from sin, knowing that Christ being raised, or sorry, now if we be dead with Christ, this is verse 8, I skipped it. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now keep these verses in mind as we go in this, because this has everything to do with the sufferings with Christ. That is the basis of the glorification that he's talking about. Now, going back to Romans 8, what we just read in Romans 8, 17, 18. I appreciate, and we need to look at this first. I appreciate that in these verses, Paul uses several times the Greek word soon, S-U-N, it's in the Greek, soon. And it is a, a compound. It, it, it's a, he uses it as a part of a compound words. He joins it to soon, these different words, and joins it with soon. And soon is a word, we'll talk about it means with, but it means more than that, but it means with. Because in these words, what we read, and, and the, the words are these. Su kleronomai, which is uh, the being joint, joint heirs, that is being heirs with him. Then sum poskumen, which is to suffer with. And then sum doxathomen, which is to be glorified together. But he, every one of those words has soon on it to show that there is a, re, that, again, Paul uses these to take extreme measures to present just how the realities that he has found in the spirit have become the possession of all who believe. And it has everything to do with the joint or with nature of our salvation, of our condition in Christ. From uh, Roberts, Robertson's word studies, and this is a lot of what this session is going to be, guys. I'm just trying to point this out to you. If we can look at this in a way that doesn't have us just trying to get run over by a vehicle every time we walk out the door. I mean, the fact is, if we understood Paul's sufferings for, his, for the ministry of the gospel during his time, his life. Man, this man was beaten un, unmercifully. He was always at the threat of his life. And things that he didn't even write down that he went through, you, we know that to be true. Imprisoned and all of the, the abuse that he went under in many, uh, many instances for the sake of the gospel. So what we do is we take that and we see that again as a pattern, as a blueprint for us, 
so that we can prove that we are just as spiritual as Paul was, or we could say, well, that's, that's got to be definitely what God wants from me. He wants me to struggle as well. So what do we do? We invent struggles. Or we point at a situation that comes to us, and we point at that and say, see that? That's the suffering. I mean, so much so that we have made Facebook deleting Christian posts struggling, the Christian struggle. We've made that part of the real problem, the real struggle of Christians today. That's nothing. I mean, that doesn't even come to be close to the physical sufferings of Paul, let alone the sufferings with Christ. Do we understand how ridiculous that is? That we think if we get a flat tire or bad, you know, situation happens to us, a divorce or lose a job or any of those things, that that's the sufferings. Uh, you know, we'll say we're suffering for Jesus, but that's not what Paul is even addressing here. He's not talking about sufferings for Jesus. He's talking about the suffering with Christ. A suffering that is only qualified as a suffering if it is joined to Christ's suffering. It's only identified as a suffering if it's with Christ. Your Facebook post being deleted, social media's war on Christian is not the sufferings with, it doesn't qualify, sufferings with Christ. So he uses the, the compound words here. Join heirs, suffers with him. That's a suffering with, a joint suffering, and glorified together are all compound words using the prefix soon to make a very strong point that we miss so many times or most of the time. And we have to keep that in mind because man takes these things and he isolates them from this together with, from this joining or this union with. But it's very important when you're speaking of the sufferings, the inheritance, the sufferings, and the glorification because they're all bound to that joining. They're all significantly and inseparably bound to with Christ. Joint heirs, joint heirs, let's look at that first. As a compound word, one who receives, a receiver, a fellow heir, Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. These are ways it's said. This is from the Greek, Greek English lexicon. But he says this, the focus of this term, because of the way it's worded, with, soon, joint heir, the focus is upon receiving an unearned gift. Hear that? 
an unearned gift. In the biblical sense, heirs of God are those who will receive the blessing that God has for his people. Joint heirs has to do with how you receive that. You are heirs, yes, okay, but he makes sure, he says you're heir, heirs of God, and then he says join heirs with Christ because he wants you to understand this inheritance is not an isolated thing you receive as an individual who is qualified. This has to do with something received because you are joined to Christ. Let's look at the word soon itself, okay? You didn't deserve it. It's not an inheritance you have because you deserve the inheritance. It's, a, it's an inheritance you have because you are joined by the grace of God to the man to whom it belongs, to the heir himself, to the seed. Read Galatians 3, it says, soon defined, let me just look at that word itself. I'm going down here. This is, again, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And it says this, Greek has similar compounds, but in part, those used by Paul in his statements are newly coined on the basis of uh, with Christ. They're newly coined with Christ. Man is set in a context of events expressed in the relevant verbs and adjectives. This process finds both its commencement and its consummation in one act with Christ. That's the act, with Christ. One act is the commencement and the consummation of this process. I love that. With Christ denotes the being of man as a believer. It is a being with Christ. The verbs and adjectives are soon, uh, in soon, make it apparent that man with Christ is called up in the Christ event. His life is commenced and consummated with Christ, meaning everything man who is in Christ, who by the work, one, that one work, that one act, have, have come to be found in Christ, That life is, has commenced reality and consummated reality in one act, and that is with Christ. That one state of being with Christ. That's what it's talking about. Whatever that word is, whatever the phrase is attached to that means this reality has its commitment, commencement and consummation because it's joined to this man, because this reality is ours, is our possession, belongs to us solely because, not by earning it, not by qualification, solely because it's because we're joined to him. Thus, the sufferings are the same, not just the inheritance and the glorification, but the suffering that he's dressing in. So, the word glorified together. And I'm using, I'm, I'm, I'm saving the sufferings for last because I want to talk about it a little more. Glorified together, again, is the compound word. The Vulgate calls it conglorifico, to be glorified together, to be exalted to the same glory to which Christ has been raised. 
with Christ, namely with Christ, to be exalted to the same glory which Christ has been raised. I want you to understand when you read that. We have to understand the impact of this soon conjunction. This is not to possess the same glory, but to be a sharer. Remember what we just said. To be a sharer by reason of an internal union of the glory that is exclusively possessed by Christ himself. It is ours only because we are with him. And this is much stronger than just standing aside or being associated with. This union is about oneness, completeness. You are complete in him. That's part of this. Glorified together. How does that happen? Well, we, we do these certain things, and then because of our isolated, ze zealous efforts, we go to glory. We become glorified. No. We're going to see that. This glorification has to do with our being found in him. Look, even Romans 8 says it. Because we, as we search these things out, we notice the sufferings here are set as active suffering and passive, meaning they're not, not they're present and they're passive, meaning they are present, not active. Present, passive, meaning they're presently taking place, but they are passively taking place. This is not active sufferings you're having to go through. This is a suffering that is brought in by another party, another source. Suffering is present, but what But we think that the glorification that's being addressed here is all about one death. In fact, the glorification that he's addressing here, glorified together, is in the past tense. It's in the aorist tense, meaning that glorification is presented as a settled matter and a fulfilled thing. Something already happened. You see what I'm saying? This suffering with Christ is the thing that ensures the glorification. If this is happening, if this suffering is taking place, because it's not something you get and get over, it's the suffering that is constant. I am crucified with Christ. Not I was, I am crucified. That's a present and constant condition of this man. Why? Because the other present and happened and settled matter is he lives in me. This is part of the suffering and glorification. In fact, Romans 8 goes on in verse 29 and 30, for whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn in many brethren, it should be. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Not something coming, but something that is attached to 
our calling, our justification, our glorification. Why? Seated with him. That's why Colossians 3 plainly speaks of Christ, our life appearing. And when he appears, we shall appear with him in glory, a place we already dwell because he dwells in us. Reality commenced and consummated just because he's present and our soul is in a joint, a union, a relation to him. That's how this reality is our possession. This is how it is current and settled and fixed as a past thing that has present weight and government in our soul. That it's the determining reality of our soul, the condition and state of being of a soul. How? With Christ. Nothing separate from him. Nothing. And again, the inheritance is that way. The glorification is that way. And so are these suffering. It's not about your flat tire. It's not about a gunshot. It's not about being boiled in oil. Not about being beaten and left for dead. Not about Facebook. None of those things. None of those things. Let me look at these words with you. The word to suffer with is to experience jointly the exact pain. To experience jointly or the same kind of pain. Now, this is from uh, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament as well. I'm read this. The whole context makes it plain that this word to suffer with cannot be meant in the sense to sympathize, meaning to sympathize with. It may also be seen from the proceeding that the soon in um, joint, uh, suffering with, that soon, some posco, does not refer to a fellowship of sufferings among Christians, meaning we are all suffering this thing together. That's not what it's about either. It has in view, this is me reading from this theological dictionary of the New Testament, it has in view a relation to Christ. A relation to Christ. You see that? It doesn't have to do with just a bunch of sufferings that we have in common or that we independently suffer, or even me sympathizing with your suffering, you sympathizing with mine, it is totally in reference to a suffering that has to do with relation to Christ and Christ alone. Notice this other reference in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 12. It is a faithful saying, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 
through these things. If we are dead with him, we will live with him. If we suffer, we shall reign. In Romans 5, we've been talking about he shall reign in life. Reigning in life is all about this. Because it has to do with those who have suffered with Christ. They shall reign in life. Now, I strongly suspect that the supposition of many that Paul links glorification to our level of suffering, this has been the wellspring of many theologies that concentrate upon and focus our expectation upon our willingness, not merely our willingness, our experience of trials, troubles, sufferings of many physical events, many different things that happen. But it seems that what Paul is saying here is actually continuing the contrast that's being made and has been made in preceding chapters. Our suffering with Christ is utterly linked to with Christ. It does not even hint towards suffering bad things. In fact, this is why we have so emphasized the issue of with Christ being used. This is a suffering, and I know it sounds weird. I'm going to repeat this, but this is what I wrote. This is a suffering that is unsufferable without this union or relationship with Christ being present. Many people can suffer many bad things. I know believers and unbelievers that, that, that suffer horrible things. But with Christ is the governing part of this. It's just like glorification and the inheritance. They are enjoyed as inseparable issues of being joined to Christ, and so is the suffering. What are the sufferings that depend upon such a joining, such a union? Luke 24, 26, Jesus says this. This is when him speaking to the people on the road to Emmaus. After he has been raised, they're going away sad, believing their Messiah, the promised one, has, is dead and it's all, it's all over. And they tell him about what happened. And then he says this, ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? Paul, I mean, Peter speaks of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would soon or immediately follow. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5 through verse 10 says, but Jesus made for, this is from the Weiss translation, Hebrews 2, 5 through 10, Jesus made for a little time lower than angels with the design that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We see him crowned as victor with glory and honor because of his suffering of death. Verse 10, for if, if it was fitting for him, for whose sake all things exist, and through whose agency all things came into existence, for bringing many sons into glory, you hear that? Bringing many sons into his glory to make complete as to saviorhood the originator of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who is set apart for God and his service and those who are set apart for God 
are out of one source or of one spirit. This is the sufferings we talked about. It's the suffering of the cross because it's his sufferings that we come to. That is the sufferings by which Paul earlier in chapter eight can say, by this work, I am dead to sin. I am dead to that first man. It is that which has made me free from the law of sin and death. He has suffered with Christ a death to that first thing, to that first man, to that previous enslavement and bondage. Thus, has been partaker of an inheritance that belongs to Christ, not him, but belongs to Christ. Why? Because that joint suffering has brought about a joint inheritance and a joint glorification because this one who has suffered this did so that in that he may be bringing many sons unto that glory. We see the same reality of Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Suffering of the loss of a previous condition in which an assumed righteousness was upheld and in which it was boasted. So he would say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And it is not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. For if righteousness could, and I do not seek righteousness by the law, for if righteousness came by the law and not by grace, then Christ died, suffered in vain. This is a further explanation of what we read in Romans 6 about our dying with him to sin, about our being raised with him to live in a newness of life over which death, sin, corruptibility had no dominion. That's the sufferings he's talking about in verse 17 because that's the sufferings that has linked with it with Christ. Not all of these things that we talk about suffering for Jesus. That's Hey, if you want to believe that, if you want to do that, that's one thing, but don't equate it to the suffering with Christ. The suffering with Christ has to do with the, with the sufferings in which Christ himself partook. And our being joined to him and partaking of that same suffering of death, a once and for all work that has severed us from the previous condition from the previous man, from the previous enslavement, and thus the previous condition. From flesh to spirit. That's the suffering he's talking about. So now in verse 18, we go in and it speaks of the sufferings of this present time. And I want to look at that because this is really where I think it's going to be the sticky point for me. Because I know there are places where Paul talks about being beaten and suffering these things. But again, I want us to look at this in the light of the context of these verses. Paul would say, I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to that which is being revealed in us, and that's actually how it should be being revealed, this present tense, present active, 
not what will one day so that we can do like we try to encourage people and say yeah i know it's tough now but one day you're going to get your reward one day it's going to be great sucks now one day it's going to be great and that's supposed to be encouraging basically saying that my calculation is that these sufferings of this present time aren't worth what these that reality being revealed is now we can say okay and he does beatings all of those things of no true comparison but the phrase to be compared is not actually there in that in that verse the word suffering here is even a different word as he used previously in verse 17 it's a different word pathos from pathos which is speaking of an affliction and speaking of passions affections lusts and i believe he's speaking of the lust and the affections that are tied to a speculated righteousness by law or that present age that age which was then present that age that said righteousness is by the law just like he says in galatians chapter one when he speaks of that god has freed us from this present evil age he's talking about the age of the law the age of the testimonial things elements and he's saying the grace of god has freed us from that age that present meaning it was present at that time visibly present evil the word evil there actually means full of toil and labor age meaning an age it was an age that was full of toil and labor that they could presently see taking place within life. Sacrifices, offerings, priesthood, all of that was still there. The temple was still standing. None of that had been destroyed yet. And Paul walked in the midst of it, having at one time looked at it as a, as a, the real measure of spirituality, now having known the real measure of spirituality as Christ himself within He says it's an evil age. He's not talking about today, 2020. He's not talking about riots in the street. You think this is bad? Guys, things have been worse a lot of times. I'm not condoning it. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. But things like this have happened. I mean, geez. I mean, Christians did things like this before too called the crusades killing people in the name of jesus come on age he's speaking of there was an age that was then present a moment of time that was then present that was full of toils and labor same thing i believe he's saying here sufferings of this present time the affections the passions the lust what was that the same affections passions and lust that paul talks about himself being involved in and having and exerting and exhibiting in romans 7 a man under the law with all the passion and desire and affection and that's why he would say in colossians 
set your true affection on what is above, not the things on the earth, for they are of no value. Chapter 2, he says that very plain. They are of no value. They're going to do the opposite of what you believe they will do. They have no value into the denial of the flesh. They give you pride. A self of a sense of self-accomplishment or self-righteousness. That's what they do. Romans 8 again. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. When put up beside, that's the word with here, 4314, it means to be put up beside, something put up beside another thing. They're not worthy when put up against the glory being revealed in us. See that? E.W. Bullinger, in his commentary, he refers this word, rightly so. Again, context of a letter means a lot. Romans 7, we've already talked about this, with the man, the woman, the marriage, that man having to die, and now you be married to another. Paul speaks in Romans 7, verse 5, he says, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members, bringing forth fruit unto death. You know what to know? There is a, the, the, the same word that is used for suffering in Romans 8, 18. The sufferings of this present time is the same word being used here in Romans 7, 5 for motions of sin. The motions of sin, our lust for it, not for bad things, the lust after the things of the law because we believe they produce righteousness. He's saying even in the midst of that affection and lust and desire for those things are in that system of the law, they brought forth nothing but death. Fruit unto death was the result every time. Every time I try to do good, Paul says, as a man, in this condition, evil is present. No matter how good those things looked and no matter how uh, divinely ordained for a moment of testimony they were to now look at them as a means of righteousness, they were never meant to, in, uh, to produce righteousness. They were meant to point you to the one who is the righteousness of God. Those things have no value. Those things have no ability to bring about the result you're after. That's what Paul's saying here. Sufferings of this present time. I think it's a better understanding here of these sufferings being addressed here. It has to do with the emotions of sin, the affections that were under the law, the lust of the flesh to be holy like God. Why Peter will say in his letter, I think it's 2 Peter, when he says that by being partakers of the divine nature, we have been clean escaped. We have clean escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Those lustful affections, we've been cleanly escaped from it. Now having 
the divine life in us. Because that life produces in us what we could not produce by those desires and efforts and lusts and affections. No matter how hard we tried or how much we gave to it. Paul was a man that gave everything he had to it. But again, he's here telling them, guys, these things are not worth comparing. These things are not worthy when put up against the thing that is being revealed. What is it? Christ himself. Christ in you, the life that brings about a fulfilled righteousness. That's the reality being revealed. It's not about one day something's going to be revealed. In fact, it's not in the future tense. It's in the past. I mean, it's in present active tense. That which is being revealed in us, in us. The very thing Paul was doing in attempting to perform under the law of Moses as a man under the law of sin, carrying out the motions of sin, which were fruitless and void of any divine substance. I wrote here the, the word, words be compared or not there but the word with actually speaks of something being put beside another thing a contrasting judgment being made according to those two things being set beside one another those things that seem to ensure spiritual growth to produce righteousness paul is saying without any weight or substance at all they're not even of consequence to be considered. In the light, in the light of this reality, the who, the person being revealed, the divine life that is being made known in us. There's the word uh, worth there because that's what he's talking about it has no worth it's not worth has no worth the word here means having weight having weight of another thing of like value that which merits anything of worth and he's saying none of these things are that's that's the same reality paul came to understand in philippians 3 7 through nine, was it not? What things were gained to me. Those are the things he thought had weight and worth and value. And he said, those I counted lost for Christ. Doubtless I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. By, because there's the substance, there's the weight there's the worth to be found in him having nothing of my own which is of the law but that which is of faith through the faith of christ the righteousness which is of god by faith now i realize what i'm saying here does not sit well with those of us who want to find great significance in suffering bad things for the lord we <laughs> If we're going to do that, we better hope this government begins to overstep its bounds in a way that's far beyond what we think we're seeing with this pandemic. If you want that to be a source of your suffering, it's not. It's not suffering. It's not anything like what Paul or others face. We invent things. Getting sick, Facebook, the leading poses, I said, 
being silenced on social media. This doesn't come close to the degree of this physical sufferings Paul faced. It, in, it truly doesn't equal suffering with Christ. Paul and those who suffered the loss of all things in Christ are, were those enjoying the glory of salvation. They were enjoying something of greater worth, of true worth, of value, of gain, something of divine and eternal gain. The other empty, vain motions of sin, the vanity of religion, is of no weight, no worth at all. The righteousness presented by that system is incongruous with the substance. It is empty and without value. That's one of the words, too, for worth, incongruous, unworthy. Or the word worth there means congruous, congruous. They're incongruous, incongruous. I can't say that. So no significance, no value, no weight, no worth. Paul then brings into view that which renders those things of zero worth, of zero weight, of zero significance. And that is the glory being revealed within us. Again, in the King James, it sounds future, shall be revealed, but in the Greek, it is in present active tense. Present tense of the phrase lies as the basis of what was seen to be futuristic in preceding verses. Paul is showing that what we, what's coming Sounds futuristic, and we'll talk about that, but it's not. It's based right here. Paul is showing that what we have now that is presently being revealed in us is greater and beyond comparison because it is actually the full intention of God who set an entire creation in subjection for such a hope's fulfillment to come, such a fulfillment of his hope to be realized. And he's declaring Christ in you the glory that was hoped for as being that reality fulfilled. And this is my conviction because the next thing we read is Paul declaring why such is not of equal worth. Because there was an entire creation waiting, having been subjected by God to its own vanity, waiting for hope to come waiting for the fulfillment of what God subjected it for. And he, in the next verses, talks about the manifestation of the sons of God. So men have taken that and said, yes, we're the sons of God they were always waiting on. We're the ones they've always been looking for. Aren't we great? Aren't we awesome? Not what he's talking about. We've already addressed who the sons of God were those who have been led by the Spirit. You remember we said led means to be led to the goal, to be led to the intended destination. Those are the sons of God. And the creation has been waiting on, on those, Paul is saying, who are the sons of God. Those who have put aside the things that are of no worth. 
those who have suffered with Christ, the death of Christ, who have suffered it and been brought unto the true glory intended, who have become partakers with the heir himself, the seed of promise, by being joined with him of the inheritance intended that Abraham looked for, the faith of Abraham being realized. The whole creation was subjected by God to its own vanity until that took place. And it's been waiting on the sons of God to finally be made apparent. What does that mean? There would be those who would lay aside the things of no worth at all because they have taken hold. As those led to this reality, they have taken hold of the great gain, the worth, the riches of Christ himself. So, that's my understanding. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. If you have any questions, you can email me. Ravenbird at gmail.com. That's R-A-B-O-N-B-Y-R-D. And uh, we can discuss it if you're if you're desiring to do that. Appreciate you listening very much. Thanks for thanks for uh, tuning in and your comments and all of the things that you do to encourage us. Thank you so much. Amen.